facial recognition is coming to the government's online sign-on service. The General Services Administration plans to add a facial matching feature to login.gov, along with some other identity verification options. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And tell us about facial recognition at login.gov. Sounds like something kind of overdue here. Login.gov is used by many federal agencies for accessing different programs and services online. They offer, you know, an account authentication option. So you can have a single account to go across multiple agencies. And they do have some identity proofing features, but this will actually raise the stakes or raise the level of identity proofing for login.gov. GSA released these plans last week. They plan to add this face matching feature to the service uh, starting within the next year. They also plan to offer folks the option to either prove their identity in person at a local post office or through a live video chat with a trained identity verification professional if they don't want to use facial recognition. So that's coming out at some point within the next year here to login.gov. And do we know whether they're using a commercial product adopting to that? Because, you know, other entities in the government have facial recognition that they've adapted from some of the commercial algorithms, NEC and so on. Or is that unknown yet at this point? Well, GSA confirmed to me that they're going to partner with a vendor that uses, quote unquote, best in class selfie matching algorithms. And they're also evaluating other alternatives. So they don't have any firm, firm plans here, but they're going to use some sort of company's product here to integrate that into login.gov. And this is a big deal for login.gov, which I think has been seen in the government as maybe falling a little bit behind in the state of the art. Yeah, you know, even though more and more agencies are adopting login.gov, you know, there's still some issues that have cropped up with the service in recent years. First, earlier this year, uh, you know, login.gov and GSA came under heavy criticism because between 2018 and 2022, the program actually misrepresented their security standards to customer agencies, saying that they met a certain level of identity proofing standard that they actually didn't. Part of the problem is is these standards require perhaps something like a biometric, like face matching in many cases. And Login.gov was not using that for those years that they said they met these standards. So there was a huge review of the program. And now, of course, they're moving to, to facial recognition. And then, of course, face matching, facial recognition still is somewhat controversial. The IRS, if folks remember last year, pulled back on plans to essentially require uh, most online customers to use fa- a facial recognition service provided by a third party. They still offer that option, but the IRS actually shifted to login.gov last year instead. So now it's kind of come full circle. Yeah, people do get uneasy for some reason with that technology. I guess they figure the every match-in will be saved, but I think most of the systems dispose of the image once the verification is made. That's true of people leaving and coming into the country through TSA and Customs and Border Protection. And so how will login.gov's face-matching system actually work? It's going to essentially compare a selfie that you take in the moment to your photo ID. And so it's not going to be going back to a database of photos that are scraped from the web or anything like that. It's, it's just going to be comparing the selfie that you take in the moment to your photo ID. That's referred to as one-to-one facial face matching facial recognition, which is typically a little less controversial than the one-to-many type of matching that we often hear about. 
GSA says the data will never be used for any purpose unrelated to verifying your identity by login.gov. And they also plan to monitor the effectiveness of its face matching tool across different demographic groups because, you know, some prior research and studies have shown that some facial recognition algorithms are less accurate for non-white faces. So they're going to monitor how well this actually works. That's interesting, though, that comparing a selfie of yourself to some other reference picture that you might have submitted already, say on a license, because the perspective is so different. When you take a selfie, that lens is close to your schnoz, and so your face has a different geometry than when the camera was like three, four feet away. And yet, I guess nowadays, yeah. modern algorithms can correct for that. Yeah, I guess so. I think you're, I think we've seen a lot of different companies come out with these these products that use a selfie compared to, you know, a photo of your driver's license, right? Especially in the COVID era when so much was shifted to online and then there was so much fraud. So clearly there are a lot of companies working on these different algorithms to really pinpoint that verification. So it's not there yet, but they plan for it in the next 12 months, GSA. At some point within the next year, GSA says they will start down this path. And we said at the top, too, that there are other alternatives for identity verification coming to login.gov other than facial. What are some of those? We know that the GSA is going to offer those in, that in-person option as well as, well as that uh, option to do a live video chat with a, a essentially customer service representative to verify your identity. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, which actually sets the identity guidelines that these agencies have to follow, is also looking at some updates to those guidelines. And they are specifically have specifically sought some feedback on whether there's an alternative to facial recognition to meet that higher level of identity proofing standard. NIST actually says that it sees a need for some sort of remote identity proofing option that does not require face recognition. And this, the representative actually spoke at a conference last week, Ryan Galuzzo, digital identity program lead for NIST. One of the things he mentioned is mobile driver's licenses. Maybe that's an option for identity proofing. We're seeing more and more states roll those out. So NIST is looking at some alternatives to face recognition, even as organizations like GSA are bringing them into login.gov. And I guess did they, at this conference, did the plain old-fashioned six-digit text number sent to you to your mobile device, which you can log on to with your face for the most part now. Did that come up? So login.gov does do the authentication using SMS text messaging codes. In some cases, they also use things like a YubiKey and things like that. That's on the account authentication side of the house. The identity proofing side of the house is a little harder because you have to have some sort of ID that proves who you are, and then you have to confirm that that's really your ID and that's really you. So that becomes a little bit more complicated. I think at the advent of the pandemic, when people could not do the gold standard, which was the only one that a lot of agencies used for employees, was in person. So that you had one for sure, that person is really there sitting in front of me. But then to hire a new employee, you couldn't do that during the COVID. So maybe now they've come up with ways for remote ID verification as opposed to strictly login for people that are trusted already. The key word here is options. I mean, clearly a lot of people want the ability to sit in their house and just sign up for services. That expectation has kind of been created, especially since COVID. But then there are folks who don't necessarily want to use technology or facial recognition, providing them the option to go to a post office to prove their identity instead or something like that seems to be the key. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and in the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.